Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Where Do We Begin? Uh, I'm absolutely pumped for you guys to be listening to this one. I'm really excited for you because this is an absolute cracker lined up. My name's Harper. Usually, I'll introduce my co-host Jackson in this intro, but sadly, uh, it's been almost a week, but he's still feeling a bit down in the dumps after that Barcelona loss to Bayern Munich uh, about five days ago. I'm recording this on a Saturday night, uh, just after the Essen-Richmond game, actually, not feeling too good after that. But anyway, Barcelona lost 8-2 to Bayern Munich. He's feeling a bit sad about that one, uh, so not feeling too good. But uh, speaking of not feeling too good and... Mental health, actually. Mental health is a very real issue for many people in society these days, as it always has been. And the stigma, it's getting reduced a lot. Uh, it's been reduced a lot in these last few years, but we've still got a long, long, long way to go. So Jackson and I have actually, um, we're doing a fundraiser for it. Uh, we're going to be cutting ourselves some mullets on the 1st of September, raising some money for research into mental health. And if you want to hear more about that, make sure you tune in for the rest of the show because at the end, in our outro, we'll be uh, having a chat about uh, how you can help us out there. But anyway, uh, I'll get into the podcast. A few days ago, we recorded a chat with um, Matt Shaw. He's an ex-Gold Coast player. He played the 13th most games ever for Gold Coast, more than 100, 102, I think. And Matt, he was the most honest, uh, genuine guy you'll ever hear. He really lifts the lid on uh, some of the things that happened at the Gold Coast. We tried to help him lift the lid, but the jar was just overflowing with all this amazing information, the crazy stories, uh, some uh, sad things happening with him and the club on what should be a very happy day and night, his wedding night. Uh, so that's a really interesting story he tells us. And uh, some absolutely great stories from his time at the Gold Coast, two-game career with Carlton as well. Uh, but I think he was a really underrated player. You don't get much spotlight up in the Gold Coast. Uh, but he was a, he was a really um, hard-working, uh, a bit of a cliche, but he was an honest player. Uh, he'd always give his all. Uh, unfortunately, his career probably didn't pan out the way he wanted it to, but I've got to say this episode panned out better than we could have ever wished for because Matt Shaw is, I'm going to put it out there, best episode ever. It's an absolute cracker. So uh, make sure you're tuning in for the whole show. Listen to the end for our fundraise about mental health, but I'm going on and on and on here. So let's get straight into it. Okay, now I'm really excited for this one. Uh, got a, I think it's one of our most recent graduates of the AFL scene. Uh, I've got to admit, he was telling me he was in Noosa, I think, the other day. A bit jealous of that in lockdown out here in Victoria. But welcome to the show, Maddie Shaw. G'day, boys. How are you? Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too, mate. Um, so you were born early 1992. Uh, how was early life for you? Yeah, so I grew up in Victoria. Um, from a little town in called Patterson Lakes. Um, so I started my junior footy down there, um, going Oz kick pretty much. Um, I started when I was probably under 10s playing juniors. I did five years of Oz kick down there. Um, and then, yeah, I played for Chelsea Seagulls um, down there. Um so I think Lee Matthews come from there. Um, 
Not too many. He's probably the main dude. I think Jaden Adard, who played a few games for Brizzy, come from there. Um, but yeah, I didn't start juniors till about under tens. And um, yeah, it was a good place to grow up. Loved it. It was Bayside, so got to go for a few runs down the beach and and swims. So um, yeah, had a good good upbringing and good family vibe. Had a holiday house down in Gippsland Lakes. So we'd always cruise down there during school holidays and, yeah, it was good. And we hear you big into your surfing now, apparently. Was that a big thing for you in your younger days as well? Yeah, definitely in my younger days. I had two good mates in high school. I probably got into it um, around year seven. Um, I have a couple of mates, Ben and Jared, down in Melbourne, and um, his mum used to drive us down to Point Leo um after school and stuff so um yeah that was definitely um something I was super keen on as a youngster uh not too I still surf a lot but fishing sort of taken over um my pastime up here so it's sort of hard to juggle now I've got the family I sort of just have to pick one or the other um on my weekend but uh yeah into my fishing big time and just for the listeners, where are you living now? Uh, I'm just I'm back on the Gold Coast, so obviously spent a lot of my life up here. Like moved up here when I was 17 to um, as part of the pre-draft for the the Suns, um, and then yeah, obviously finished up. I forgot what year it was. It was 2017 or something. So it was like eight or nine years I spent on the coast. And then I did that year with Carlton. Um, and then, yeah, sort of Melbourne life didn't really suit my family very very well. So we were pretty quick to move back up, drive the family back up and set up back up here, which was probably one of the toughest things I've ever done. Um, way harder than moving away when I was 17 was finishing my career and moving back up to the Gold Coast and starting a life again outside of the footy bubble up here. So we will get into that. How was that whole experience of getting picked up by the Gold Coast when you were 17? Yeah, it was pretty surreal. Um, what All I can remember back then was like, obviously played for Dandong Stingrays and um, I was playing, I got scouted by the Vic Country and I played as a 17-year-old. That's when it started getting pretty serious for me. I was sort of just enjoying my footy. I was a bit um, oblivious to, you know, I knew I wanted to play AFL, but I never thought it would happen. And I was just like, I used to just love footy, like just enjoy it um, for what it is. And then... Yeah, every level I seem to step up, I seem to get be comfortable with and, um, you know, I never felt out of my depth or anything. And obviously there was talk that there was the new team starting up. Um, yeah, but it all happened super quick. Played a few games in the Vic Country, sort of knew that um, a couple of the Gold Coast scouts were would be watching those games. Didn't feel like I had the best carnival, even though I was a bottom major playing against 18-year-olds. 
but yeah, I was obviously they saw some potential there, and I was lucky enough for them to go with me. Yeah, sick. That just would have been, as you said, absolutely surreal experience. Um, yeah. But we hear you're a uh, big into your cricket as well, big keen cricketer, and uh, we know someone like Alex Keith. Um, he was picked up by the Gold Coast at 17 as well. Yeah. But then he chose cricket, then came back to footy. Yeah. So, like you said, footy was only on your mind, but a bit before you were 17, was cricket on your mind at all to go into that or no? Um, no, nah, not at all. Really. I played a lot of other sports. I was like a bit of an all-rounder as a youngster, but footy was the main stay during winter down in Melbourne. Um, played a heap of basketball. Um with Chelsea Chelsea Gulls as well, they were called. Um, yeah, played a heap of basketball, did a bit of life-saving, which didn't last long in Melbourne. It was pretty cold. Um, played, I probably played two or three seasons of cricket. Was lucky enough to turn up once and, and take a hat-trick and then win a premiership, and I was happy with that. Uh, Not bad at all. Yeah, so... Pretty stoked with that. And then, yeah, gave it away. I actually played with my dad dad for one season. So, um, so we were like in the thirds. Um, so that was good fun. Enjoyed that. Pretty much gave everything a crack as a youngster. But um, footy always came. It always came back to footy, you know, going and have a kick after school. And it was just an obsession really, like um, always having a kick with my mates at lunchtime at Morty um, Art College and stuff. So I don't know. It's just one of those things, you know. You, oh, I always had a footy in my hand when I was growing up. And, um, yeah, that's just that's just how life was, in, especially growing up in, in Melbourne in the footy bubble. So you did mention you moved up to the Gold Coast pretty young, but how was it in your first year when playing in the VFL? So you would fly to Melbourne yep. every second week. Yeah, no, that was good because obviously my family's in Melbourne, so they got to watch a few of my games. Um, I was pretty skinny back then, so I was playing against men in the VFL, which a a lot of us were. Um, So it was a massive step up um, just in, you know, the speed of the game was a little bit of a step up in the VFL, but it was more just the crash and bash of the bodies of the bigger boys. so it was a really good learning curve for me and for a lot of the young players that were up and coming. There was a couple of guys in our team that were built, um, who matured a lot earlier, who were built for the VFL and there was a couple of guys like me, a couple of outside wingers types and small forwards that had a lot of filling out to do. Um, but, yeah, really, really enjoyed that VFL year because it wasn't like we just got thrown into the deep end, into the AFL, and we got to sort of gel as a team um, and see what what it was all about. Um, it was a good little progression into the AFL. Um, but, yeah, um, and, yeah, obviously moving up as a 17-year-old straight out of school, <laughs> it was pretty... Well, we got moved into host family, so it was all right. Um, so it still sort of felt like we had that family vibe, but there was a lot of things that um, I realised I didn't know how to do, like, for instance, just getting money out of an ATM or, um, you know, washing my clothes and things like that. Just had to grow up pretty quick. 
yeah, I'm 17 now, and I just couldn't imagine going to move out of home right now, like yeah, in school, like going up for footy. It's just yeah, crazy to me. But um, you talked about the host family there. Were you with another player with that host family? Yeah, so I started off. I was I got I probably stayed at about. I probably moved houses up up here during my career, probably about seven times, uh, just with host families and stuff at the start, and then with players who had then got delisted. But um, my first player that I met was Brandon Matera. Um, we we were living in a place in Ashmore, and yeah, walked in and seen little fishy there, and. So it was a welcome site and then Dave Swallow moved in with me as well. So a couple good players that are still playing at the moment. And then I only stayed there for a week because then I moved out to the house I was meant to be staying in, which was with Hayden Jolly and it was just me and him um, living in Palm Beach, which was good, close to the surf. Um, so I used to wake up pretty early in my early days and go for a paddle before training and stuff, which um, soon got knocked on the head by the coaches because <laughs> I, <was, laughs> I was getting a bit run down and smashing myself. But, um, yeah, it was all good fun. Yeah, uh, the Gold Coast is pretty famous down in Victoria at least for – it's the schoolies place, you know. So uh, lots of my mates will probably go, be going up there end of this year if it wasn't for coronavirus. But um, did you take advantage of much of their nightlife, all that stuff up there when in your younger days? Uh, not at all. Like growing up, even in Melbourne, sort of, um, you know, there was a. You hear the stories of guys who sort of go down one path or the other path. One path being that party life and the other path being a professional and, you know, saying no to going to all those parties because you might have, you know, footy a couple of days later or whatever and I sort of took that path. Um, I was sort of footy obsessed. So I wanted to be um, playing at the best of my ability and growing up with my, my parents weren't very big on, like, drinking alcohol and things like that. So it was never something that um, I was very interested in. Don't get me wrong, I did. I definitely went out and explored, you know, a few pubs and clubs when I was 18. But um, to this, even to this day, it's not really my scene, um, you know, going out and drinking. I'd rather you know, be waking up fresh and going for a surf and, or go fishing. But I feel like I've got a pretty good balance with that sort of thing. Um, and, yeah, definitely, you know, me and the boys when we were younger, growing up on the Goldie when we were playing, definitely there was times where we got together as a group and have, had drinks and things like that. Um, but, yeah, there was nothing ever, nothing ever too over the top for me. So you did mention when you were in the VFL, you sort of gelled together as a group. How how late into preseason or really early uh, did like the Ablets and the Swallows and the Riscatellis all join the group? And was that hard to gel them in? Um, I think they sort of what well, guys sort of can't. I can't really remember even back that far. 
of when, but I do remember, like, you know, when they come in, because they've played, you know, a lot of games and, and played seasons of footy before they came to the club, you know, even Carmichael Hunt, when he came to the club, the boys just look, try and look up to them, you know, Nathan Bock, um, Campbell Brown, all those guys, you know, you sort of, sort of just look to them for advice and, and mentors. So, you know, they were sort of the ones with the louder voice that were bringing the group together. And then there was their younger um, leaders who were then, you know, feeding off that and then trying to bring that young group together. And, yeah, I think it was pretty good. Um, you know, we we're all very close at a young Young at, the, at that young early stage of the club and obviously we went through a lot of hard times, tough times where, you know, um, you've got to have tough conversations when, you know, you're not winning games and things like that. Um, <clears throat> but you just got to take it in your stride and and learn from the weeks and the, and the months of games that you play. That's all you can really do, and there's no point getting cut up at each other and things like that, which you know some some people could have easily done, um, especially from the pressure of the outside of media and things like that. Yeah, uh, in the first season, especially, probably big crash back down to earth. From I guess there was a bit of confidence in the group with all these really talented young players like yourself and your brand Matera, and you've got the senior guys like. Gary Ablett, so was there a really big confidence before you got into the first AFL season? Yeah, it was, there, was a, there was definitely confidence there because we had some awesome players playing for us. But it's obviously, you know, it's not really your top It's not really your top 10 players you've got to worry about. It's like your bottom five or six who are going to get you through and win games. Um, and we just didn't really have that that depth and that real good, you know, consistency across the board at that early stage. And there wasn't, there was pressure obviously going in week to week, um, but there wasn't that pressure on winning games early because we were a new team. People didn't really expect us to, you know, go out there and smash every team. But, um, yeah, definitely as the seasons went on, the pressure started to mount. Um, which takes a toll on a, on a young team, I think, personally, um, like mentally. Um, you know, you might be in the right headspace, but it's hard to tell what your teammates are, head, type of headspace they're in with getting beaten week in, week out sort of thing. Um, I'm sure a lot of, you know, local clubs can vouch for that of how it feels. Um, because there's always those teams in every comp that sort of, you know, get beaten up each week. But, um, yeah, obviously the club's going pretty well now. Like They're pretty competitive at the moment and um, um, I've been watching them pretty closely. So it's good, good to see them going well. Debut round four against Melbourne at the Gabba. How was that experience for you? Yeah, oh, that was amazing. Um, one that's pretty, still got pretty good memories of. Um, obviously, Bluey picked me for the team round four, got left out, obviously, for the first couple of rounds, but 
didn't let that get me down and went back and played good footy in the reserves and got my opportunity and, um, yeah, tagged Aaron Davey, which is pretty oh, big awesome. task for your first game. Um, learned some pretty good um, things during the game and, you know, kicked the goal with my first kick and stuff, which was super exciting. Didn't get a lot of the footy, but, um, yeah, just to be out there, you know, it's a, it's a childhood dream and um, something that I hold pretty close and will never forget, really. As one of the players who was picked up uh, earlier than everyone else when you were 17, uh, do you reckon you expected to be in the team uh, round two, which was your first game of that year, or uh, did you kind of expect just to not be playing for a while like you did in round four? Uh, you definitely don't expect to, you know, just be playing straight up. Um, it's obviously on how your form is and things like that during the preseason. Um, but, yes, it's super tough. Like, you know, all these draft drafties and stuff come in and they, they think that they've made it straight away, whatever. They've, like, been picked for an AFL team, but really, like... The challenge has only just begun, like getting selected to join the team because then you've got to, you know, you, you're almost like once you've been picked for the team, then you're sort of fighting against your teammates for that spot in the, you know, in the 22 for the weekend. And once you sort of make that 22, that's when you come together as a team you got to have that sort of mentality, that brutal mentality at training that, you know, the guy standing next to you might be your teammate, but, you know, he could take your spot. So you got to, you know, fight like cat and dog to, to try and cement your spot in the team, which is a lot harder to do than what you'd think. Um, you know, there's obviously that top, you know, 10 or 10 or 12 players that get selected each week pretty clearly above the rest. But, yeah, then the rest are, are fighting for a spot every day pretty much, trying to show how professional they are, trying to show their physicality at training, um, you know, during running drills, things like that. So, yeah, it it's definitely takes a physical and mental toll over the years. Yeah, uh, how do you find yourself and maybe some of the other boys, if you know anything about it, how did you find you coped with the whole mental health side of it or did you struggle to cope with that at all? I think when I started, it wasn't really something that got looked at or even thought about. Um, only in like the last probably, um, say, three to four years, it started to creep in. Like we started doing... Um, some meditation and stuff at training and um, things like that. And then the AFLPAs obviously started stepping in and saying that, you know, one of the one of the worst things in AFL is or when you get delisted is what is it? It's like it's obviously finding a job and then mental health. And I feel like they sort of go hand in hand, but then because you sort of lose your identity when you um, when you finish your career, it's a bit of a weird feeling. 
And um, they say that it takes about five years for you to find your feet once you finish your career. I think there's... The AFL and the AFLPA still have a long way to go with mental health um, within the AFL, um, my personal belief. Um, I think they're on the right track, but, um, yeah, still a lot needs to be done because, yeah, there's a lot of um, media pressure and, you know, with social media these days as well. Um, it's pretty full on. Have you got any specific suggestions if the AFLPA is listening to the show? <laughs> Obviously, just listen to the players a bit more. Um, you know, oh, the AFLPA, they have helped me a lot. Um, and, but I don't know, I feel like they, <laughs> I've got to try and get these words right. But, um, yeah, I feel like um, they can be doing a lot more to be helping players. Um, there's conversations that I've had with them that haven't really sat well with me. And, um, you know, I've been talking to teammates um, who are still in the game who, you know, can still make a change um, in that aspect um, to help all players, especially post-career and, um, yeah, post their football career mainly um, because yeah, a lot of players struggle when they finish their career, which is pretty sad to see. Um, I know when I first got to Suns, I know it's a, it was a start-up team um, and it was more focused on the on-field aspect and the on-field right, you know, winning games. But I feel like that first, you know, probably two or three years in my career was a massive, now that I look back on it, a massive loss where I could have been developing my skills for life after football because the fact, well, what the stats say that players really only have a three to four year career on average, which is not very long. And then once they've finished their career, then who knows what they're doing might be a bit easier in Melbourne for the um, AFL teams because it's a bit more of a bubble, but especially these northern teams, Brisbane and the Gold Coast, where it's not so much an AFL community, um, people aren't throwing jobs at you. You've got to go out and and find them. That's what I've found anyway. Yeah, um, people hear about all the superstars like Sean Burgoyne, probably going to play 400 games or something, but you don't hear about so much about the people who – just getting delisted after two or three years, which happens like so, so yeah. often. Yeah. Um, and it's just, yeah, just gets pushed under the rug, I yeah. guess. But um, uh, someone like a Paddy Dangerfield or something, because he's in this Melbourne or Victorian bubble that you're speaking about, like you'll probably be seeing him in the media in 10 years when he's retired. But I, I don't know, have you done too much media stuff post-career? Uh, not too much media stuff, but as you can tell, um I'm not the greatest talker in front of the camera. I never really have been throughout my career. I sort of try and shy away from it. Um, yeah, never. I was never really um, one of the, you know, the Dave Swallow or the Tom Lynch who always got that media spotlight each week. I got a little bit here and there, but I didn't really, I don't really enjoy it that much. 
um, to be honest. So I sort of just tried to shy away from it and, and just go about my thing. So you did mention the superstars. Um, how big was it to have arguably one of the best players in, that to ever play the game, Gary Ablett, play with you? Yeah, it's, uh, you sort of have to pinch yourself sometimes but, uh, when you saw him around the club. But, um, yeah, super down-to-earth guy. would give the time of the day to anyone. Um, and, yeah, it's something that you look back on and, and you're just super privileged to be able to play with a, a player of his calibre. Um, and, yeah, play the amount of games that I did with him. Um, I remember some games, it was just when he was on, it was like the game was standing still and everyone was sort of watching him just do his thing. He'd just, like, appear out of the stoppage with the ball and snap a goal and you just like, how, does, how the hell did he just do that? It's sort of, yeah, especially as a winger because I'd sort of, be playing that keeper role, that outside position. So I had the best seat in the house to watch the best player in the AFL do his thing. And, yeah, I was often on the end of the handballs once he won it inside. And, yeah, it was pretty special. Yeah, sounds sick, really. But um, <laughs> was Gary uh, one of the guys – was he – did he stay away from the group a bit? Like all the younger guys just really looking up to him, he's just a bit of a god? Or was he really, really intertwined with the whole connections in terms of all the other players? No, nah, he was definitely intertwined and he was definitely a player you had to seek out for advice and he would give it to you. Um, but he, he gave you solid feedback on the field as well. Like I can remember a number of times when I was playing, he'd be... Um, it would come to quarter time and you'd run over and he'd explain something to me that he saw in my game and things like that. Um, but Gaz, he's, he's one of those players, he knows what his body, he knows what his body needed to do. He didn't have to do what everyone else was doing. So early in my career, like a lot of the training drills and things we do, we'd all just do together. Um, whether you were a ruckman, whether you were a backman, all the running was pretty similar. And then as my career sort of got into the, its back end, um, it started to become more specific to your position. Um, if you're a midfielder, you were doing drills that would simulate the game. Um, like agility and repeat effort, you know, tackles, getting beat up. Backmen would be doing, you know, sprint efforts because they've got to be quick off the mark to, you know, um, chase down their forward and, and put on a spoil. For half forwards would be getting up and back. Wingers would be doing 300s because they're getting up and back the field. And then Gaz was no different to that. He, he knew what his body needed to do. So you'd see him doing some pretty alternative things in the gym, a lot of plyometric stuff, explosive stuff, which you saw in his game. He was super explosive, so that's obviously what he was training. And, um, yeah, the more you look back on that, um, (coughs) the more you realise he was getting the best out of himself. Yeah, so talking about that whole development thing, in the early years and 
you've got like a superstar, Gary Ablett, in his prime uh, at the start of the club. But uh, GWS, they really did it in a different way. And uh, I think it's fair to say they've probably experienced more success than the Suns over the course of the 10 years or so. Um, uh, Do you have any jealousy towards the Giants in terms of that kind of stuff or no? I more have like... I feel like that's what the Suns could have been. Like, I feel like we just did. If we had, like, if you look at the AFL now, um, you know, the Dion Pressiers, Josh Caddies, Tom Lynch, you know, all Brandon Matera has gone to Freo, all the players that have dispersed over the years. If I'd love to see it, if if we all got them back together at this moment, what we'd be like, because I feel like we'd be a pretty challenging team to beat. Um, So that's the more disappointing thing that I feel like the club didn't have the trust or didn't, you know, um, couldn't keep us all together to be able to, um, yeah, I feel like the club just didn't have that faith in us to be able to get the job done um, when I look back at it. And I think this, the GWS Giants, you know, they haven't lost too many players. They've lost a couple here and there, but the majority of their group they've kept together. And um, I think that's where their success has come from because they've just spent years together now and know each other's game inside out where the Suns, we had some older players that had only maybe a couple of years left of their career and then we lost some, you know, younger players to other teams. And, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what we could have done if, if the group, the main group could have been kept together. So do you think that the Gold Coast was sort of like a blueprint to what GWS could improve on in terms of running a club? Do you think that GWS sort of saw where Gold Coast may have gone wrong yeah, yeah. and gone in a different direction? Yeah, perhaps. I think they might have. Uh, it's hard for me to tell because I've, I'm not really in the, you know, behind the scenes of GWS. But um, for sure that's something that they probably could have looked at and they probably could have um, used us as a bit of a a bit of a... Um, See what see what we do and see what mistakes we make and then change. Yeah, now that you say that, it's probably they're in a good position to be able to do that. But yeah, who knows? Only really GWS knows that. But I think they sort of um, whoever you know. Obviously, Kevin Sheedy was coaching them. They just had a bit of a different um, different method to their madness that has obviously worked. Yeah, uh, makes sense now that you think about it, really. But uh, did the players have much of a sense of what was going on at higher up in the club, or was it all purely focused on the on on field matters? Well, I think a couple of the older players might have had an idea what was going on, but most of this, the higher up stuff happened behind closed doors, and you can sort of get a little bit of a sense of what's going on around the the club and you hear a bit of talk and things like that, but it's mainly kept behind closed doors. I don't think you ever really know what happens at any club. There's obviously a lot of politics involved um, 
with all the footy managers and things like that. So, but yeah, you try not to focus on all that stuff as a player. You just sort of do your thing, recover, play games as to the best of your ability. So, you did mention before all the players leaving. Do you think, from personal experience, was it more? Um, them not ha- being happy at the club or just that lure of playing at a higher level, like Tom Lynch higher, like going to play at Richmond to hope yeah. for a premiership? Yeah. Um, I'm not, you know, you, only they can really say how they felt, but I can definitely understand a player like Tom Lynch and Dion Pressey are doing what they've done. Um, it's obviously paid off massively for them. And, you know, for me, even going down to play for Carlton, um, like it's another world down there compared to up here. Um, it's just crazy being down in that, you know, the Melbourne footy bubble. Um, so different to up here. Um, so, yeah, I felt like a new draftee when I, I came down to Melbourne and, and got picked up by them. Um but, yeah, only they, they really know if they were unhappy or whether they wanted to just, you know, try another club. But, no, I would have loved to have seen everyone, you know, stick together and who knows what could have happened. Suns could have had three premierships on our... Yeah. Um, <laughs> the players uh, chat about uh, leaving the club or moving on to... Greener pastures, I suppose, in in the change rooms or in the group chats or anything like that, or was it all completely private and with the agents. No, nah, it was super private. You never really heard anything until it sort of came to a head when they were leaving and they had to ch- speak to the group and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's all done by the players' managers behind closed doors, and then yeah, the players always say say goodbye at the. At the death of it. Yeah. Um, doesn't sound very happy. Sounds a bit sad seeing your mates go all of a sudden. Oh, yeah. There you go. Um, did you ever think about before the Carlton, uh, before you got picked up by Carlton, of course, did you ever think about moving on prior to that? Um, to be honest, yes, I did. Um it just comes to a point in your career, especially when I was on the fringe, you know, when Rodney Ede sort of come. Uh, I was sort of that fringe player for a couple of years and I didn't really see myself getting um, opportunities that were – I felt like I, I was playing good enough footy to be able to, you know, be being selected for senior footy. You know, I was getting, you know, 40-plus touches in the reserves and um, obviously it still wasn't good enough um, for what the coach wanted. So when you have other clubs knocking on your door and saying, oh, we're interested in you, you know, you're being – you're not getting utilised right up there and things like that – it makes you want to go to a team that, that wants you. So that's definitely something I thought about. Who were some of those specific teams, if you don't mind me asking? <laughs> um, well, I had North Melbourne pretty interested, but, you know, it's it's all things that you get fed by your manager. 
So you don't actually hear it from the horse's mouth. So it's until you put pen to paper, clubs can say as much as they want. <laughs> and you see it all too often that clubs promise you the world and um, it doesn't come through and you you get left there um, looking like an idiot. Like, <laughs> for instance, Daniel Gorange. Um, openly talks about his experience at the Suns. Um, yeah, so that's that's the sort of thing that can happen. So we did have a few Goz questions lined up later, but we'll get into that a bit later. Um, you did mention Ronnie Ede, and so in your time at the Suns, you had Guy McKenna, who spent years as an assistant coach at Collingwood, first gig as a senior coach, and then was taken over by Rodney Ede, who's one of the longest-serving coaches in, in history. How was the difference between both of them? Yeah, they were pretty different coaches, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> I had a really good relationship with Blue McKenna. Um, here. All coaches are bloody hard asses. Um, they have to be. They feel a lot of pressure from the media. Um, Blue McKenna was... Had, he, he had really good people skills, um, which is something I believe in. As a coach, you have to have, like, you've got to build a relationship with your players on a personal level before you can start having a crack at them. And, and you know, because then once you build that personal relationship with a player, then the player's going to, you know, accept that feedback. And it's almost like a friend talking to a friend because, you're trying to improve. Um, so I'm a massive believer in having that sort of mateship with the coach. Um, so Bluey was really good at that. Um, and just some of his, some of the things I didn't agree with was the way he went about, you know, team reviews and things like that. Um, that was just pretty old school, you would t- you would say. Um and then, yeah, Rodney Ede, I didn't really get along with too well. Um, he's, he's a really good person, but um, me and him just didn't see eye to eye. And there's going to be, no matter what team you look at in the AFL, there's going to be players that say, yeah, I don't really see eye to eye with my coach. I don't really get along with him that well. And then there's going to be players that are going to say, I get along with him super well because we all have different personalities Rodney Ede wasn't really a people person. He was pretty, <laughs> a pretty funny fella. Um, but on the other hand, his reviews and things like that were really good. You'd, you'd learn a lot from him. Um, he actually was pretty calm in front of the group. Like, he'd definitely blow up. Um, but, you know, every coach has their blow-ups. And... I felt like, in my experience with him, when we got to, you know, half-time, quarter-time and things like that, generally his message was pretty clear to the group and that's all you need. But, yeah, there's going to be things about coaches that you don't like and and things that you like about him also. But that's just... Um, part and parcel with the, of the game. But I definitely feel like coaching is taking a swing towards the more people, people person, um, you know, the coaches who um, 
you know, like you see the Brizzy coach wrapping their arm around their players and, and hugging them and things like that. You'd never see that in the old days where I think there was, there's definitely a, a changeover from that old school coach to the new school coach these days. Yeah, and as a Bombers fan myself, uh, I think you see John Walsfold on the bench uh, after the draw with the Suns uh, about a week ago. Uh, he yeah. was like smiling, having a laugh. You would not have seen that even like yeah. 10 years ago. But And yeah. he was coaching, but he's he was coaching like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but he's just adapted his style completely. Exactly, yeah, so he's obviously changed with the times, which is really great to see that he's noticed that swing in coaching. It's not that old school, you know, blast every player for – you know, real hard-ass sort of attitude. It's more that, you know, explain calmly. And I feel like that, you know, when you do have a coach come into a group huddle or whatever and he's calm, he's relaxed, his messages are getting through to the players because he's speaking clearly, he's not yelling. Because as soon as a coach starts yelling and going off his nut, you can guarantee the players aren't thinking about the message that's been delivered. They're just thinking, oh, my God, like, he's blasting us. Like, oh, like, everyone's sort of, you can feel everyone going to their shell. But when you have a coach that's calm, comes into the group, delivers the me- a strong message to the group, then you just feel that energy in the group, you know, um, which is what you want from a coach, I feel. Yeah, uh, well, obviously... I've never played footy at the highest level, but uh, for the sport I have played, the local community sport, stuff like that, uh, it just gives you a much better vibe when, yeah, yeah, you haven't got a coach just absolutely ripping into you. It's a yeah. junior sport. It's a bit different, of course, but I yeah. guess it's kind of the same oh, with the, you don't like to shout it out, you know? But, yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah, I think Jackson might have had a couple of questions on the, Rodney Eads stuff, but you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that uh, Blue McKenna, um, you didn't agree with some of his old school uh, video analysis review stuff. So can you go a bit more into that for us? Oh, a little bit, yeah. It was more just pointing fingers at players and things like that. Um, it wasn't – I don't think players really got a lot out of the review. They sort of just went into it thinking that – they were going to get in trouble for something. Um, but, yeah, that's obviously how he went about his reviews. And I didn't know any better until another coach come along and I seen the way he reviewed. Um, so I got to compare. Um, and, yeah, that's just what I got out of that. So, yeah, you did mention uh, Goz before. He's said on multiple podcasts that uh, Rocket uh, gave him a few sprays. Do you cop any from Rocket? Oh, I think everyone who plays at the Sun had copped a spray from Rocket. Probably Rocket copped a spray from Rocket. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he's just, yeah, he's just that type of bloke. He's pretty passionate and um, loves a good spray, like old school spray. They don't call him Rocket Ed for nothing. Exactly. That's for sure. Um, do you think he, the way he coached and with all the sprays and stuff, did that affect the club culture at all? Um, no, I don't think so because I feel like he sort of composed himself in front of the group, but you'd still, you know, you'd still cop a spray here and there, but yeah, <laughs> I don't know, it's a hard one. 
Um, some player, it just depends what type of player you are, because that's what that's what I'm talking about. You you build these personal relationships with a player, you know, you know. All right, Dave Swallow, he can cop a good spray. Sometimes he likes to cop a spray. A spray, he responds well to that. So I'm going to spray him if he needs it. Other players um, might not respond very well to um, to that. So. That's where it's, um, you know, you've got to get to know your players inside and out on a personal level to become an even better coach. Yeah, um, in the, after Bluey was dumped, I guess, uh, and Rocket Rocket Ede came in, uh, you only played 30 games for the Suns over three years and only for six wins the Suns didn't do too well in those like, lean years, I guess. But do you reckon, like, having sprays left, right and centre – with Rodney Ede coming in, do you reckon that was massive shock and probably didn't do much good for the team? Um, oh, I'm not too sure because, as you said, I only played the 30 games under Rocket and um, <clears throat> majority of the time he was pretty good, like in a, in a team scenario. I think the main thing um, why I miss out with him was – you know, I'd, I'd go above and beyond to try and improve my game. You know, I think I've, I got sort of um, scrutinised on my ground ball efforts and tackling, things like that. So I was going over and above doing hours after training, tackling, after hours, ground balls, um, and there was improvement in that. Um, during my reserves games, you know, I'd, I'd edit clips and things like that and show him how I've improved, but it always just was the same answer from Rocket, which was just keep keep doing your thing, keep practising. Um, and I think that was just a bit of an easy way out for him, for me, which is when, yeah, obviously started looking at interests from other clubs and things like that. Probably ne- no, never really came for you at the Suns, but doing all the after-training work, all the extra stuff, could you see a light at the end of the tunnel potentially or was it just doing it because uh, to impress the coach to try to get in? Uh, well, I felt like I was beating my head up against a brick wall with the, with Rocket. Um, it didn't matter how much extras I did. Um, or how many <laughs> hours of ground balls I did, I just felt like I was never going to get another chance sort of thing. So starts to pay a bit of a toll. I started to not enjoy my footy anymore. Um, there was a time where I, you know, even thought about giving it away altogether. Um, but, yeah, it was not really me to do that. So I just kept battling away um, sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, you know, you hear it from other players as well who have been in my exact same position and there's not much you can really do when when that happens. So, yeah, you did mention um, the move and I'm trying to move. So how did the move to Carlton come about? Um, so I actually got delisted from the Suns. So it was actually on my wedding day, actually. So I was over over in Bali 
So, yeah, pretty much I got told I was going to get traded from the Suns um, at my end of year review. Um, so they obviously thought I was someone who might be worthy to another club so they could get a deal pretty much. So that was just them exploring that avenue. Um, so we, as my manager, Liam Pickering, is, did his best to try and get me to another club during that trade. Um, when the trade period finished, um, I think there was another little period. I forgot what that was called. And then that finished. And then, yeah, I was over in Bali on my wedding night and seeing that I got delisted from the Suns. Never really got a phone call or anything to say how, um, you know, thank you for your eight years or whatever. Never really, I never really heard anything, just seen it on Facebook pretty much that I'd been delisted. And then, yeah, so that was on my wedding night. And then a couple of days, a couple of weeks later, I was on my honeymoon and um, Pickers called me and said, um, Carlton's interested. They want you to meet and stuff. And lucky enough, come home from my honeymoon and caught up with um, Sauce and, <coughs> and the Carlton coach. Um, up in the up at on the Goldie and had a chat to them, um, and yeah, it went really well. And then I was lucky enough to get picked up as a rookie at, at Carlton. So then that little journey began. Yeah, that uh, that whole delisting debacle, I guess you could call it, just sounds so so sad and just yeah. crazy to think about that. Really, on your on your wedding night, especially, and I think I was having a look. And I think you've played the thirteenth most games for the Suns even now yeah. and just to treat uh, like one of the like I guess you could consider yourself a legend of the club uh, 13 most games it's, pre- it's a pretty good number so it's, yeah just appalling to hear really yeah and it's um, you know it's not only me it's a lot of players that depart the club it's a uh, pretty pretty brutal uh, pretty brutal one yeah that's definitely something they need to look at in the future, I'm, I'm super grateful that I didn't finish my career at the Suns. I finished my career at Carlton and they offered me some great help. Um, Carlton offered me some super help when I finished my career to um, set up a bit of a plan for my life after footy, um, which was, yeah, awesome. Yeah, I think just before we get on to the Carlton stuff, do you still hold any resentment towards the Suns at all? Yeah, definitely. Like, no one likes to be treated the way I did and the way I know a lot of my mates have been treated who I played with, who come from the Suns. Um, I don't really know what's going on there, but they need to clean up um, their act with the way they, you know, depart players and even coaches as well. Um, Because it's not really good enough. It's not, not professional. Um, there's definitely a bit of anger and resentment there because um, it feels like, you know, you put your blood, sweat and tears into a team and then it felt like you were sort of just a number at the end of the day there. Um, whereas when I finished at Carlton, it felt like you weren't just a number, you, you're a human, 
you're a person who's going to be leaving a bit of a legacy and then moving on with the rest of their life and it felt like they cared about, you know, you not just as a player but as a person to succeed in life after football. Um, at the point where you did um, finish up the Suns, how many originals left uh, were there left? I think there might have been two. I think it was like Tommy Nichols and Spitter, Dave Swallow. I'm pretty sure that was all that was left. And then, yeah, I think Spitter's the only one that's left, really. How tough was it seeing all your mates just leave the club one by one by one by one and just heaps every year just <laughs> departing and departing? Yeah, yeah, no, it is tough, but it's part of the game also, um, especially the older players. Super, uh, it's pretty emotional when they leave, actually. It's, yeah, you because know, you sort of have such a good relationship with all the players and such good memories and stuff with them. Um, and you go through some super tough sessions with them, which you build that that personal relationship with them. Um, I think that's the joy of footy as well, joy of team sports, that, um, you know, you ride the bumps together. Yeah, um, just a couple more. Uh, we've actually got some fan comments and questions <laughs> from some Suns fans. Sunny <laughs> no, so, fans. Uh, Sa- Sandy, uh, it says, it's just a comment. Hi, Maddie. Miss miss watching you play. So, cheers for that, Sandy. Yeah, uh, I'm sure you appreciate that heaps, Matt. Thanks, Sandy. Uh, so thank you, Sandy, for that. And uh, one from Mark as well. Uh, how did it feel wearing the green vest in a lot of games when you should have been uh, mainstay? <laughs> the way I say it, wearing the green vest was a lot better than copping the red the red vest. <laughs> that was a bit of a weird time. I think Lukey Russell copped a lot of um, the green and oh, red vest, um, from what I remember, and um, yeah, made his opinion pretty clear to the group that he hated it. But um, yeah, I'm glad that green vest is gone, hey, because um, oh, it, shocking! It really puts on show who's got, who's not playing next week, pretty much. Uh, doesn't doesn't add anything to the game really. Like, nah. it just takes away some, like another rotation on the bench. I reckon. Yeah, fans hate it. it. Obviously, the players hate it. Yeah, it didn't really get used for what it was meant to be used for, which was for if someone su- suffered a serious injury. Sort of got used strategically for a pretty explosive player to come on and have a massive impact if no one did get injured, sort of thing. And then unlucky for me and some other players, we were that sort of player that fitted the bill. But, hey, I'd rather be wearing the green vest than sitting on the sideline as well. So I was lucky enough to play a few games. Uh, Just before we get into our famous last segment, the quiz, uh, can you tell us a bit about your your two-game Carlton career, what that whole experience was like? Yeah, it was obviously... uh, Super grateful um, for Carlton picking me up um, and obviously got to play, I think I played a Friday night game against St Kilda and played against the Hawks as well. Um, 
Yeah, just the the whole atmosphere down in in Melbourne because you're playing with two Melbourne teams, you know, the Saints and the Hawks. The crowd and the energy is just, it was so different compared to the Suns because a lot of the time, even when we were having a home game at the Suns, it felt like you were playing a bit of an away game. Um, But, yeah, just to put on that that Guernsey um, is something super special because the club has so much history. I think it... Uh, yeah, like obviously one of the big four clubs alongside um, Essendon, Richmond and um, who else is it? <laughs> um, yeah, obviously the big four clubs. And then um, Jackson's Magpies, I think you Yeah, yeah, the Maggies, of course. That buddy at the Lexus Centre over there. They've got, got it all up, all sorted over there. But um yeah, it's a bit surreal and, you know, a lot of my family, growing up I supported St Kilda and then a lot of my mum's side of the family barracked for Carlton and my grandfather who had passed away barracked for Carlton so it was, he would have been super proud that um, I got to play a few games for him. Yeah, just great to hear ending on a much more positive note than probably I think it's fair to say the – the, probably the majority of your career at the Suns one. But, uh, Jackson, have you got anything else for Matt before we get into the quiz? No, let's, let's go into it. All right, Matt, uh, I doubt you've listened to the show before, uh, but uh, we've got a little last segment that we like to do. Uh, so uh, I'm going to host a quiz. It's going to be you up against Jackson. So we've, we've got five questions. Oh Jackson has been on an absolutely shocking run recently. I don't think he's beaten a guest for months. <laughs> it's, I reckon it's been at least 10 yeah, hours. Because I'm shocking at quizzes. <laughs> and I haven't paid much attention to footy at all. Oh, mate, it's, it's not a footy quiz. It's Well, it's, it's got a bit about footy, oh. but it's got some wacky stuff in there. Uh, so okay. we like to Good. keep it a bit related to your career. So, uh, so very, very vaguely related. So it's not... When were you born or something like that? But uh, I guess we'll just go straight into it. So I'd get that. (laughs) So question one, obviously, uh, your name's Matt. And oh, actually, by the way, uh, you'd think Matt Shaw would be a pretty common name, but I was having a look at your Wikipedia page. There's not a single other Matt Shaw Wikipedia page, which was weird. But there you go. No other famous Matt Shaws, even though it's a pretty common name. But anyway, Matt Preston, another Matt. So a question about Matt Preston. Matt Preston's speedy spaghetti bolognese from Delicious Magazine and website has 17 ingredients. So I'm going to go between you two. You're going to name one each, one by one. Whoever gets one wrong first uh, is going to lose the point. The other person gets the point. Um, Who wants to go first? You go first, Jackson. Jackson? Go first. <laughs> so wait, what was so, it again? What was the Matt actual Preston's recipe? Speedy <laughs> spaghetti bolognese. You can prepare and cook it in only 15 minutes. All right. Uh, obviously, tomatoes. Uh, tomatoes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tomatoes. Cherry tomatoes. I'll give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, spaghetti. Uh, yep, spaghetti is correct. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, beef mince. Oh, beef mince. Uh, Let's have a look. 
Oh, yeah, it is there. It is there. <laughs> I couldn't say it. it is there. Oh, <laughs> it's oh, a long mate. list. It's hard to read. Uh, Matt, oh. anything more? I'm going to say... be the most basic of ingredients. Can be Oregano. Oregano. Bit of a punt. Oregano is incorrect. Mm. Oh. <laughs> well, it's obviously not the best speaking of the is it? Yeah. <laughs> What's your recipe? <laughs> oh, it obviously has oregano in it. Yeah. Well, I love a bit of oregano. <laughs> so, uh... For those interested in Matt Preston's speedy spaghetti bolognese, uh, you've got spaghetti, <laughs> olive oil, uh, star anise, never heard of that, uh, onion, garlic, anchovies, beef mince, celery stalk and carrot, streaky bacon, beef stock cubes, soy sauce, apple cider vinegar, tomato paste, port, cherry tomatoes, lemon juice and parmesan. So there you go, Jackson's one nil up. But How about the anchovies in a spag oh, bowl? What? <laughs> Unusual. Not great at the best of times, but chucking him in a delicious dish like oh. a spag bowl. It's atrocity. Sure. <laughs> um so Jackson's in the lead, but that usually uh, tends to not last too long. So we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll go to question two. So I did a question about your first name before Matt, obviously. Now I've got a question about Shaw's, but not Shaw like the last name. It's Shaw the Beach Shaw. So <laughs> the Ballantine Scale, Hayden Ballantine, our uh, former guest, of course, the Ballantine Scale was devised in 1961 to measure the degree of exposure level of wave action on a rocky shore. The initials A, C, remember these letters, the initials A, C, F, O, R, and N are used to describe abundance of certain species in the scale. Name what two of these initials stand for. <laughs> Just they're relating to abundance and how, how much of the certain species there are on the rocks. Oh, uh, I don't live near a beach harbour, so I've got no clue, mate. My mind's blown. <laughs> He did, he did say it'd be yeah, wacky. Yeah, it is a bit wacky. Um, it's Yeah, I don't really know what other clue I can give, but they're all – so it's A, C, F, O, R, and N, and they're all relating to uh, – like they're all terms about rarity and how common things are. Do you want to have a go or should I just move on? <laughs> I'd have no idea. i got no clue. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. It's abundant, common, frequent – Occasional, rare, and absent, or none. The absent is the end. But there you go. I thought you might have got one of those. I tried to make the Ballantine scale. It's a. There was a big document. I've uh, never heard yeah, of that it's, before. It's got like a tiny look of Wikipedia page. The only other thing on the internet is this big uh, thing by Mr. Ballantine. He's written up for some university. So I had a little read through that and couldn't find a great question. But there you go. All right, so question three, Jackson, still 1-0 up. So are uh, you into your soccer, Matt? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe you've heard of Neymar. Have you heard of Neymar? Yeah, I've heard of Neymar. Yeah, okay, that's good. So closest to the pin, this one. So just buzz in with your name and it's closest to the pin. So Neymar has got the exact same birthday as you, 5th of February, 1992. Uh so in August 2017, PSG broke the record for the most expensive football transfer of all time, buying Neymar from Real Madrid in euros 
what was the fee? So one euro is a dollar sixty-five. What was the fee? <laughs> uh, Jackson. Also, it was from Barcelona, not Real Madrid. Oh, why am I? I've mistyped it. Oh, I'm gonna no. I'm gonna say two hundred and twenty-two million euros. Two hundred and twenty-two million is exactly right. Oh, I know. So. <laughs> I, I call myself a bit of a expert, but I've written in Real Madrid instead of Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's atrocious, really. And he still yeah, got um, it right. <laughs> he corrected you and still got it right. <laughs> Jackson <laughs> might have taken it Yeah, I should. <laughs> anyway, question four. We'll pump through it. It's been a long one. So this is the second last question. So, Matt, try to get this one. So your initials MS, of course. MS stands for milliseconds. How many milliseconds are in a minute? I'll need a precise answer. A thousand? A thousand? I've no idea. A thousand is incorrect. Jackson, do I have a go? A hundred thousand. Six hundred thousand? Oh, it's sixty thousand. <laughs> so there's a thousand oh. in a second and there's sixty seconds in a minute, so yeah. sixty thousand. But our last question the famous who am I question. So, Matt, you can get back into it with this one. So it's uh, we're going to go from five points uh, with a series of clues all the way down to one point. And once you buzz in uh, and get it wrong, you can't buzz in again until the other person gets it wrong. So for five points, I was born on the 21st of July 1988 in Finlay, New South Wales. Bit tough. Might just move it on straight away. Anyone want to have a go or not? No. All right, for, for four points, I'm most known for my AFL career, during which I've used my 198 centimetre height to great effect. Born in 88 in country New South Wales, 198 centimetres, footy player. But I'll move it on because you don't look very hopeful, either of you. Uh, for three <laughs> points, taken at pick 41 in the 2006 National Draft, I've played the 14th most games in the history of a Victorian club. Should I move it on? Okay, I'll move it on. Matt, you have to get it here at the two-pointer to win it. Uh, But if you get it at the one-point, we'll go to a tie-break. But uh, Jackson could get it there. So for two points. For two points. I thought I was 2-0 oh, up. 2-0 up. Of course you are. Oh, I've got the name on one. Jesus, this is this is an atrocious performance for me as host. So <laughs> I might have to cut some of this out. For two points. I'm currently trying to make 2020 the ninth consecutive season in which I've been the leading goal kicker of the club I've won two premierships with. So he's been leading goal kicker eight seasons in a row before this season. And he's won two premierships with this club. And he's still playing. Matt, do you want to have a crack? <laughs> no, he's obviously a Ford. He is a Ford. <laughs> oh, I've got no idea. Do you want to just have a stab in the dark? 198 centimetre Ford. Victorian club, one club player. Played lots of games. Country boy. From New South Wales. From country New South Wales. Uh, I think I've got it. Uh, He's Jackson, got his I'm phone. Cheater. 
I haven't. My phone is my phone's oh, over there. Not controversy. Might have to be disqualified. But is it review? Is it Tom Hawkins? Let's see. Is it Tom Hawkins? Tom Hawkins is. Correct. Yes. He's won it. He's back to form. Back to form. <laughs> I'm all about building confidence here. <laughs> Thank you, Jackson Matt. Really appreciate it, mate. Amazing history, and you've lost to it. <laughs> it's I'm symbolic, happy. really. <laughs> right. But uh, this it's been a long episode, so I think uh, we should wrap it up there. So. Big thanks to you, Matt Shaw, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been great. Nah, cheers, boys. It was a bit of fun. Yeah, cheers, mate. Thanks. Guys, what did I tell you? I promised you it would be an absolute cracker of an episode, and I've got to say, I think my promise uh, came true. Feel free to let me know if it didn't, but how good was that episode? It was Matt Shaw, an absolute legend. Uh, oh, really, in this outro, I'd love to – recap and reminisce about that episode until the cows come home uh but unfortunately it's been a long one already so i'm gonna chat to you about a few things uh some normal outro topics but uh i promise you i'd speak about the mental health fundraiser that jackson and i are doing uh so if you tuned into wdwb extra number three the episode the other day uh with darcy radford and a few other guests uh he's doing a fundraiser uh, mullets for mental health thanks to the thanks to the black dog institute uh it's a great cause because uh, we all know mental health uh sadly but um truthfully it's really an issue that impacts so many people uh in this in our society because especially during this whole coronavirus lockdown part two if you're in victoria it's just a horrible, horrible thing for anyone to go through or any of your loved ones to go through. So uh, he's going to be cutting himself a mullet for a mental health fundraiser, mental health research, amazing funds for mental health research. How good is that? And Jackson and I got to be inspired. So we're just going to copy his idea, really. We're doing our own mullets for mental health. So on September the 1st, uh, I've got a pretty luscious uh, locks of hair going out at the moment. I haven't cut it for a while. Uh, so on September the 1st, Jackson and I, we're going to be trimming off the top a bit and shaving off a bit of the sides, and we're going to be getting our very own mullets. And I tell you what, if I couldn't look anything like big Sammy Draper, he's an absolute god amongst men, that guy, isn't he? Jeez, Sammy Draper. If you're listening, mate, big shout out to you. Love your work. If I could look anything like you, mate, I'd be very, very happy with myself because you've got a cracking mullet. So uh, we're doing our own mullets for mental health. And uh, we're aiming big, actually. We're trying to raise a 1000 bucks before September 1st. It's a big ask, but I know uh, if just 1% of the MCG, 1,000 people donated a dollar each, we'd make it to a 1000 bucks. And it's really, uh, every cent matters if you can donate a dollar or if you can donate a hundred, like uh, David Monks actually donated a hundred bucks to the cause. So a big shout out to him. That would be much appreciated. But we know uh, lots of people are struggling at this time with finances, uh, job losses, all that kind of stuff. So if you can't donate, just give uh, some posts on our social media or share, get the word out there and just spread love to your mates. You know, people need support in times like this and uh, just... 
sharing love and uh, offering support to your mates is just, or anyone really, it's just so, so important. But if you can donate, we'd massively, massively appreciate it. Uh, so if you want to check out how to donate, uh, check out our social medias, which I'll mention at the end of the show, or you can go to the website. Uh, I'll tell you that website now. It's bit.ly forward slash WDWB, all in caps, mullets for the number four, mental health. So just again, that is B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash capital W, capital D, capital U-W, capital B, mullets, all in lowercase, number four, mental health, all in lowercase. So uh, you can donate your money there or you can even join up our mullet team. We're aiming to raise a thousand bucks and if you could donate 50 cents or a thousand bucks yourself, if you're absolutely stacked, uh, go for it. We'd love it. Uh, So... We hugely appreciate that, uh, and I think uh, we should give a big shout-out to our socials because there you can have a look at uh, what some of the more the intricacies of what we're doing, and you can get all the links there. So on Twitter and Instagram, we're at WDWBPod. That is WDWBPod. And on Facebook, we're at Where Do We Begin? Uh, that's, if you want the link, it's facebook.com forward slash WDWBPod. Uh, and yeah, we've got some good content up on our socials at the moment. Uh, so go check those out. And of course, check out the links for the fundraiser. Uh, we'd be hugely appreciative of it again. Uh, but we've actually had a few patron members during the week. Uh, so I've got to give a big shout out to them, actually. If you want to join up, by the way, ha- help support us on our little podcasting adventure, our little journey, you can just go to patreon.com forward slash you guessed it, WDWB pod. They are a bloody good combination of letters, the WDWB pod. Uh, so go check that out. You can sign up for as little as three US dollars a month. Absolute bargain for some of the benefits you get, which you can all see there. But a uh, big shout out to uh, two new Patreon members. Uh, so in the rookie tier, the $3 tier, we've got Mr. Dean Eddy. So big round of applause for you, Dean Eddy. Great work. Thank you very much, mate. Uh, we're hugely appreciative of it because we're just a couple of amateurs and any coin that we can make out of this, uh, we hugely, hugely appreciate. And uh, in the club legend tier, someone's donating 10 bucks a month uh, and they go by the name of Al Messi. So uh, I presume that's you, Lionel. If you're listening from Catalonia out in Barcelona in your big mansion out there, Big shout out to you, mate. I love your work. Uh, if you ever want to jump on the podcast, just come on. That's Al Messi. Uh, he's signed up for the $10 Club Legend tier. And if you want to do that, you can go to patreon.com forward slash WDWB pod. Help us out. It'll be hugely, hugely appreciated. Uh, but if you want to divert uh, your money to an even more worthy cause, of course, look at our fundraiser on all our socials or the link I gave before. But this podcast has been a really long one. Uh, we're going to play some music, actually, at the end of this one. But just before we do, uh, just before I have a chat about that with you guys, uh, I'd just like to ask you to share the pod around because the bigger the audience, the better content we can produce. And make sure you give us a five-star review on iTunes and tell all your mates about us uh, on all the socials or get in touch with them in real life if you're outside the lovely state of Victoria. Uh, we're on all your favourite podcast apps. But... Oh, jeez, I'm rambling on today, today, aren't I? Uh, But anyway, I'll chat about our music today. So, uh, Sarah, 
Lockie and Jamie, uh, they form a three-piece pop-punk band based in Melbourne. I uh, don't think they're doing many gigs at the moment, so all the more reason for us to help them out with a little play on our show. They've got a really uh, early 2000s kind of throwback sound, like a Taking Back Sunday, I think. If you know those guys, uh, they're very similar to them, actually. But anyway, so Jamie, Lockie, Lachlan, and Sarah uh, – Sarah on the drums, Jamie on the bass, and Lachlan on the vocals and the lead guitar. Uh, they've got a new single for the band's called Analog Hope, actually. Big shout out to them. Check them out on Facebook and Instagram, Analog Hope. Uh, they've got a fairly new track called Said It Once Again. And I think this podcast has been a bloody long one. So let's get into this poppy, punky, absolutely wonderful track called Said It Once Again. And thanks for listening. Tune in next week.